All right, now let me turn your attention to Joshua chapter 11. What a chapter Joshua 11 is. We won't read the whole thing, but the whole thing is just one more battle after another. But I want to set the scene in verses 1 through 5 so we can get a feel for what this chapter is about. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 1. <clears throat> when Jabin, the king of Hazor, when he heard this, what did he hear? Well, he heard the sun stand still and the great battle that God gave the people of Israel. When Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kenneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their, joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would bring great encouragement to those that are discouraged, that you would heal souls that are wounded, that you will help your children, men and women, that desire to be close to you. God, give us the joy of our salvation. And Lord, I pray you will minister to the hearts of people today. These are your people, Father. Please minister to their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The book of Joshua and the man named Joshua. Today we read about the God of Joshua. The God of Joshua is a God of battles. He is a God of war. I mean, you can read it, it's brutal. He's a God of victory. He is a God of judgment. You read the book of Joshua, you find that God is a God of miracles. He is a God of mercy. This God is a God who strengthens his people and judges his enemies. This is a God that magnifies the glory of His holy name. Joshua is the God of the Bible. He's the God of covenant. He is, he is our God. This God that is undomesticated and unencumbered and unstopped. Here is the God that saves sinners at the cross of Jesus. Here is the God that judges the unrepentant in the dungeons of hell. Here in Joshua chapter 11, we see him in all his resplendent severity and all of his gracious mercy. So let, let, let's, uh, let's, let's play a little catch up here. We haven't been in Joshua for a little while. It'll be helpful to me. Let's play some catch up. You get to Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua brought the leader, all of the people, right into the river Jordan. They crossed it miraculously. God opened it up like he did the Red Sea. They came across in chapter 3. 
Chapter 4, they stack 12 stones to remember all that God has done right there. Chapter 5, God renews the covenant. They are now on the other side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to go into the land. God renews the covenant there, gets them ready for what, they, what they're going to face. Chapter 6 is the wonderful story of Jericho and how they circled the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down in chapter 6. But something happened. There was the sin of Achan. Chapter 7, that sin is dealt with. Well, not completely because they go up against Ai and they lose. Then the sin is dealt with. Chapter 8, now they get victory over this city named Ai. Chapter 9 is the Gibeonite deception. Remember those? They told, they told the people of Israel that they lived a long way away. But they really didn't. They lived very close and they tricked Israel. And Israel stayed by the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites. Chapter 10, a day, chapter 10 is a, a day like no other day. It's the day that the sun stood still. It's, it's what those kings in 11, chapter 11, verse 1, heard about. Chapter 11, now the real conquest begins for the northern part of the promised land. And as you read it in chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, you're going to see that the people of God are going to face the most difficult challenge yet. Like Athanasius says, it, contramundum, it, can, it can feel like the whole world is against them. As you walk through this story, and we'll go through it quickly, we're going to learn some things about our God, but we're going to learn some things about what it means to actually be, what does it mean to actually be His people? You know, it's so easy in, in the world we live in right now, 2021, it is so easy to feel like we are losing, to feel like we are drowning in a world that hates our God and hates everything we hold dear. And today, what I want to do in the time we have together, I want to take this chapter from an Old Testament book, chapter 11. I want to encourage, I want to encourage your heart and feed your soul on the rich bounty that is found in Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll see that, that our God will never leave you or forsake you. When you read Joshua, the book of Joshua it resounds with that statement. Our God will never leave you or forsake you. Let's begin with a couple of things there. Let's begin with that first sentence from verse 1 down to verse 5. And let's look at the description. And here's what I want you to see on the very front end. And that is that being, being overwhelmed is not the same as being overcome. Every one of you here that has a sense of being overwhelmed, in your life right now, you need to know as, as a child of God, even purchased by the blood of Jesus, you, being overwhelmed does not mean you actually are overcome. Let me show you where I get that. Let's go to verse 1 and just, you got to take it all in. You start in verse 1 and look at the names and the cities that are getting together to smash little Israel. You start out in verse 1 and there you have a man named Jabin. He's the king of a place called Hazor. Let me tell you why that's important. Archaeologists tell you that Hazor is 200 acres around. So it's a pretty big city. By comparison, Jericho was six acres. So they could march around Jericho pretty quickly. 
Hazor has 200 acres, had the people there. It's a giant city. And this king that's powerful comes and calls all of his friends in, in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. When you read it, you have five kings there, several cities, six. I mean, look at the six people groups. Just go with me to verse 3, for instance. You have, have there in verse 3 the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Hivites. I mean, you got all the ites that are lining up to get together with this king to smash Israel. Not only that, you get down to verse 4, and here's what the writer does. That's why the Bible, one of the reasons the Bible is so fun to read, because the writer is helping you along. And, and verse 4, he slows us way down and says, I want you to feel how bad this is. Go to verse 4. And the writer slows us down to make sure we get the feel of the overwhelming odds. He starts us there and says that all of their troops, they were a great horde. You see it in verse 4? They were a great horde in number. They were so many that we can't count. It's like the sand that's on the seashore. And at the end of verse 4, you'll, you'll notice they've got modern weapons of warfare. Israel doesn't have. They've got horses and they've got chariots. Come down to verse 5, and there verse 5 tells us that all of these cities and all of these kings and all of these peoples, they have coalesced and joined forces, and they've come out against the people of God. Verse 4 and 5, slow us down, you can feel it. You felt it yourself when the, the overwhelming odds start to multiply. It's amazing how many things can start going wrong at the same time. Sometimes it can feel unstoppable as, as things stack up and you wonder how much worse can it get? It's one thing to feel discouraged. It's another thing altogether to feel overwhelmed. So many things right there in verses 4 and 5. So many people coming against us, they got and they've got horses and chariots. You know, that's when we remember what the psalmist said. You remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7? The psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Because our God, the name of God is a strong tower that the righteous run into and they are saved. Do you know the book of Job? Have you read the book of Job? It's good for you to know the Bible and know the book of Job as it opens up with Satan speaking to God and asking for permission to strike Job and God gives it. You go and read the book of Job and there poor man stands and a messenger comes up and tells him that the Sabians have come and killed his younger children. While that messenger is standing there, another messenger comes and says, the fire from God fell and burnt up all of your flocks. And while that messenger is standing there, another messenger comes and says, the Chaldeans have come and, and taken your camels and all of your servants. And while that messenger is standing there, another messenger comes and says, all of your older children, they were in a house. Wind came, knocked the pillars out, and the roof smashed them. Can you... Can you join Job and say, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look, if you are in Jesus Christ, 
If you're a Christian, you can say that. Why? Because to, for you, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What did John Piper say? That we, if you treasure, when you learn to treasure Jesus above all other things, the circumstances that come won't matter because your treasure is here. You can say that, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, brothers and sisters, what I'm asking you to do today is to, I'm asking you to trust God. A lot of us use crutches in life. We, we need those crutches to prop us up, to get us along, emotional crutches that keep us sort of going forward. But do you know what God does? God takes away the the crutches. God, God takes the crutches away so that you will, will trust God. So that you will see you don't need those crutches. That God is the one that can make you healthy. And what we find when we read this story is that our God will never leave you or forsake you. And being overwhelmed, and I know some of you feel overwhelmed right now. Being overwhelmed is not the same thing as being overcome. As you look at this story and think about it, let's, let's sort of press into the second point. Because the second lesson goes with the first. Here's the second thing to remember. Number two, the sovereignty of God. I hope that you'll fall in love with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is a safety net for me. Let me show where I get this. Let's come down the page a little bit uh, to verses 6, 7, and 8. Those three verses go together. And uh, together... Verses 6, 7, and 8 make a sovereignty sandwich. I want you to eat this sovereignty. I've got eating on my mind. I've been doing a lot of eating. Sovereignty sandwich. Look at the structure. So when you look at verse 6, it's all about God. When you look at verse 7, it is all about man. When you look at verse 8, it is all about God. Read it like that. So go with me to verse 6. It's all about God. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel, and you shall hamstring their horses, burn their chariots with fire. That's all God. I'm going to give them to you. Verse 7. Joshua and all of his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. That's all man. God, man, and then verse 8. Look at God. And the Lord gave them into the hand of of Israel. Is, isn't it good? Isn't it good to remember that? That, that God says, I, verse 6, I, I'm going to give them into your hand. Do not be afraid. One of the great refrains you find throughout the book of Joshua is the Lord saying, do not be afraid, I will give. It, it's just like, it's like the Lord says in Lamentations that His his mercies are new every morning. God gives new mercies for new problems. God gives new mercy for our new problems that we might have new confidence because the truth is that, that, that our confidence, our faith, it, it leaks out. If our soul is like a sponge that soaks in the goodness of God, when that sponge is squeezed, that faith comes out. And needs refilling. Our, our faith starves and needs nourishment. Our confidence, star, our joy and 
our strength and our encouragement, they all leak. Every one of them. It's why um, you, can, you can attest to this. You can have four or five people say something encouraging to you and have one person say something discouraged and just deflates every bit of it. That, that encouragement, it all leaks. It's why it's such a wonderful truth that the mercies of God are new every single morning. Let's, let's, go, back to this, um, let's go back to this sovereignty sandwich, verse 6, 7, and 8. Verse, if you look at the outer parts, verse 6 and verse 8, they're all about God. And those two verses give us the security, the energy to do something. Verse 7 is Joshua and the people actually following through. Now, one of the things we need to sort of get a hold of and not separate, God's sovereignty and His working doesn't stifle our decision-making. It doesn't mean God's in control of everything. We don't have, we don't, our decisions don't make any difference. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God's sovereignty instead gives, gives energy and, and purpose and meaning to the things that we do. Making decisions and facing hardship and, and taking risks. It's good to be able to trust a sovereign God when you're looking at two things, both of which could be a good decision. You're not so sure which way to go, which is going to be pleasing to the Lord. And you can make a decision trusting that God will work that out. It's good when you can take a risk for the Lord that seems reckless to other people. You can do things that appear reckless because there's absolutely nothing reckless about our God. Verse 7 is, you go into verse 7. Verse 7, Joshua and the army, Joshua and the people, they fought. They had to fight hard. They won a great victory. That's one way to look at it. Verse 6 and verse 8, God in His goodness gave them a great victory. You see, God's sovereignty, this is the God we serve. God's sovereignty is a safety net. There's no pressure He won't use. There's no problem that he won't employ. There's no heartbreak he doesn't control. There is no fire that you are placed in that he doesn't use to refine your heart, to make you more like Christ. If he is the blacksmith and you are the iron and he puts you into the fire and he pounds you on the anvil of life and he's shaping you into something and sparks are flying and it is uncomfortable, why are you resenting that if you know that the smith is making you into something that is going to be useful and beautiful? There's nothing in your life that God is not using. There's, there's, there's nothing that has been wasted. If that's the case, you know what you can do? You can stand there in the middle of it. You can trust and you can, you can endure. You can even embrace whatever comes your way. If you're a Christian, this only works if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian clinging to Romans 8.28, do you love Romans 8.28? Do you believe that he, in fact, is working all things together for your good because you love him? I just want you to hear as a child of God, you, you are not alone. You are not forgotten. What you're going through is not being wasted. 
You are being conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And being overwhelmed is it's not the same as being overcome. Why? Because the sovereignty of God is a safety net for me. If, if that's the case, then we have one thing to do. That brings me to my third point. Number three, if all that is true, then our business, number three, our business is to obey God and trust Him for the results. Our business is not to plan and think about the future and if I do this, it's going to happen. Our business is to be right here in this moment to live our lives in absolute obedience to the Lord. Let me show where I get this. If you take verse 8, so you start at verse 8 and you just keep on coming down the story. You can take verse 8 all the way to verse 22 and what you have is one description of a battle after another. It's a battle narrative, and when you read it sometimes, it can sound pretty, it can sound pretty brutal. I just would encourage you to look at it. Look with both eyes, look squarely at that brutality, see that judgment, see the people being killed. The, the Old Testament, especially Joshua, is a reminder of the, of the judgment of God and a reminder of the sweetness of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, make sure when we explain the gospel, we're not saying the gospel is therapy that's going to help you be a better person. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the great news that solves the judgment problem. It goes like this. This is what the Bible teaches. Let's see if I can give it explicitly. God is holy. He created every person in His image, including you. You are created in the image of God. That image in you has been disfigured to the degree that you not only are separated from God, but that, that sin, that sin we commit, because we're sinners, those sins are transgressions against the holy God, so that we not only are separated, but more than that, we actually have sinned against God, incurring the wrath of God. So God is angry with that. It, makes, it creates a problem. That's the whole Bible talks about God's judgment. I mean, the people that are killed here is killed. The gospel is the solution to the judgment problem. The gospel teaches that God not only is a judge, he also is one that loves his creation. And he gave us Jesus who lived perfectly. We can't. And goes to the cross, and there at the cross, the cross is a picture of judgment. The cross is where the judgment of God is poured out on Jesus for all the sins of every sinner that will ever be saved. You're a sinner and you haven't put your faith. You can be saved there at the cross because Jesus takes the judgment of God. They put him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead as a declaration of victory. And the offer is anyone that believes that. You'll put your faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. But there's something else here in this text. Something I want you to... Um, there's, this, there's this recurring refrain. If chapter 11 were a song, the refrain would be obedience. Here is the life of a child of God. Here is the substance of our days. This is what we do with our lives. That, that we seek to obey God rather than obeying men. And, and brothers and sisters, this, these are the issues that we'll be facing more and more. Whether it's our views, if you're a Christian, believe the Bible, 
I mean, if you believe what this book says, we're going to be uh, counterculture completely. Our views on marriage, our views on sexuality, our views, these are headline, our views on abortion or transgender revolution, or just matters of integrity. Just being obedient. God has called each of us to be obedient to His Word. I mean, I'm going to be sure I get it. You can find it in verse 9. Notice, notice the words of obedience. Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua did just what the Lord said. Drop down with me to verse 12. There at the end you see, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded him. He was obedient. Drop down with me to verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. All, all, you find that all throughout these narratives of battle, that's, that's immediate obedience. God has called you to be fully obedient. God has called you to be outwardly obedient. But there's something else here that I almost missed it. <clears throat> it's, it's an insertion in verse 18. Notice what verse 18 says, that Joshua made war long time with those kings. It's a reminder that your life is not a sprint, but a marathon. It's a reminder that following Jesus Christ is not a one-time event where you got saved. It is a one-time event that leads to a lifetime of following. We call it perseverance of the saints. It means that once we're saved, we're always saved. But that, that is a doctrine too many people have fallen back on. If you're saved, you're always saved. It's why we need the gospel to be converted at conversion, to put our faith in Jesus. One time event where we went from death to life. But we need the gospel every single day because the gospel saves us and the gospel keeps on saving us. Grace is what saves us. Grace is what sustains us, and obedience tells the story in your life of God's amazing grace. Obeying God and trusting Him for the results. It's a good time to take us down to verse 20, 19 and 20, and that's our fourth point, to think about God. When you think about God, here's number four, it's good to remember that God is God and does what he wants. It, it's good when you read verse 19 and 20 to remember God is God. He does what he wants. Let me take you there. This, uh, think of what happened with the Pharaoh in Exodus. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now we read that and very few of us, when we read that, very few of us are comfortable with that. It feels weird to, to hear it describing God as hardening their hearts and showing no mercy. But don't, don't, don't forget how it opened up in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 says that all the kings of the land, they had heard what that God, they had heard what that God was doing. They heard of the Jordan being opened up. They heard of Jericho falling. They 
heard about the sun standing still. They heard about the power of Israel's God. They heard and resisted. God doesn't have to do anything to actually harden people's hearts. People's hearts are already hardened. This is what Romans 1 says, that, that God gives them over. Here's an echo of, that's where you want to be, that's where you shall be. Here's an echo of the Pharaoh hardening his heart and God giving him over to that. God doesn't have to do anything to harden people's hearts. They're already hard. Even still, when you, when you read verse 20, look at the negative of it. When you look, flip it over and think about it in a different way. Verse 20 about God being able to harden somebody's heart. Verse 20 is as hopeful as it is scary. You know why? Because this reminds us, this reminds us that God has the power and the prerogative to change people. This is why, this is why we pray for people. If God can harden hearts, surely He can open hearts. Surely He can soften hearts. Surely God can open the eyes of somebody's heart. Last week, Kyler preached about the prodigal son. And a lot of us can either, you heard that message, you either were like, you know, I'm the prodigal or I'm the old brother, or you started thinking about someone you know as a, as a prodigal. You maybe even have a prodigal. When you pray for your prodigal, what are you praying? What we're praying is God overrule, break in and change their hearts. It's good for us to remember now, don't, don't constrict the power of God. It's good for us to remember that God is God and we ask God to actually do the business of God. That, that He is the potter and we're the clay, that He's the molder and I'm the molded. And the fact that God has that kind of power should cause us to worship Him and love Him and praise God more that we serve a God that is that powerful. We serve a God that holds people's hearts in His hands. I tell you, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't pay a little bit of attention to verse 23. If I didn't close with this last thought, I'll make this my last one. And that is that Jesus Christ, He is our ultimate rest. When you come down with me to the description of verse 23 of the final description it's like an editorial. Verse 23 is, the writer's given us, he's summing up the story for us in verse 23. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> so Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Look at the sequence. Stay in there. Joshua obeyed God. Joshua fulfilled the law of Moses. Joshua gave the people rest. You hold your finger there and you draw a straight line over to the Gospels of the New Testament. There you find Yeshua, the same name, Joshua. There you find the true and greater Joshua. Jesus Christ obeyed God the Father when we couldn't. Jesus kept all the commandments because we break them. 
And Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus gives his people rest. What did, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? What's his invitation? Come to me, all you who are weary and labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, our God will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Will you join me as we pray together? With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord and a few moments of prayer, I'd like to walk you through a couple of questions. And here's the first one, number one. As you sit there today, what is it that you're burdened? What is it that, that one thing, we all got one thing, what is it that you're burdened by? Right now, today, that you're burdened by? Or you might, you might phrase it another way. What is it that you are worried about? Is it someone? Maybe it's yourself. Here's another question. Are, are you overwhelmed? You feel that, the, the, sort of the panic and the anxiety that comes with that. And have you lived like you were overcome? Are you overwhelmed? Do you lack trust today? And for those of you that are not sure, I just will ask, are you a child of God? Or are you an enemy of God? The invitation of Jesus Christ is, come and I will give you rest. Today when we sing, I'll just invite you. If you'd like to come and talk to a pastor, or possibly if you want to talk to one after church, that's fine as well. But if you'd like to come forward and pray or have a pastor pray with you, talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Jesus, when we sing, I'll invite you to come. Father, thank you for your word that is good, for your grace that is real. Thank you that you grant us faith to believe and be saved. And I pray that according to your own will, you'll draw people to yourself. God, I pray that you would give us a greater confidence that we might walk with you. And Lord, I give these people to you and pray that you administer to their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand please as we sing together?